It is not every day that uh, I get the thrill of speaking with a writer of the stature of Buzz Bissinger, a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer uh, responsible for a whole host of great books, including most famously Friday Night Lights, which has just been republished in a special 25th anniversary edition. Uh, Mr. Bissinger and I spoke on a previous occasion about uh, another book of his called LeBron's Dream Team, How Five Friends Made History, a very intriguing look at LeBron James uh, very early in his life and uh, the first basketball dynasty which he helped to build. Uh, I am also very much uh, admire a, a beautiful book uh, Bissinger has written called Father's Day Across America with an unusual dad and his extraordinary son. And he has lots of other books to his credit, and maybe you've also read his outstanding writing in Vanity Fair magazine. Again, today we are focusing on the 25th anniversary edition of uh, Friday Night Lights, which includes a, a very interesting new afterword uh, in which Buzz Bissinger reconnects with some of the uh, young men whom he profiled as part of his groundbreaking work from a quarter century ago. Buzz Bissinger, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm really happy to talk with you. I have to start out with a question that's a little strange, maybe. Um, there are some ways in which your own relationship with this book, Friday Night Lights, has been kind of a turbulent one, starting with the way in which it was received in Odessa, Texas, by some of the folks there, uh, and 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 also the fact that it was this huge, phenomenally uh, successful book. And so in some ways, your relationship to the book and its success is ambivalent. What does it feel like now to be pummeled with interview requests uh, as this book is re-released. Um, are you frustrated to still be talking about Friday Night Lights, or is it still kind of a rich terrain for you to be talking about? Well, you know, it's a good question. I mean, I, I've made peace with it at a certain moment. Frankly, it did uh, really torture me because of the enormous success of the book that I did not anticipate. Um, you know, I knew the goal was to not write about high school football, but to write about the way in which high school football influences every strand of small-town life, whether it's parents living through their kids, or whether it's academics, or whether it's race, and whether they're heroic, or whether there's tragedy. But it just took off, and it sold very well, and then it becomes a film, and it sells even better, and then it's a television show. It sold about 2 million copies, which is insane. And I wrote this when I was 34 years old. This is my first book, and I realized in my mid-40s I was never going to top it. And I would say in my early and mid-50s as my life was crashing around me, I, I hated hearing about it, so I didn't really watch the television show. It became kind of this noose around my neck, this feeling I'm a, I'm a one-hit um, wonder, but, you know, um, things changed and my life changed, and now, uh, you know, I embrace it because it's hard to believe 25 years later people still, you know, want to talk about it. <laughs> that they do. And uh, I do have to say, um, I actually read Friday Night Lights for the first time uh, when this 25th anniversary edition came out. I'd certainly heard about it, but I wasn't particularly interested in kind of the general subject matter. And then over recent years, I've read and interviewed a number of authors who have written books that in some ways are roughly comparable uh, sometimes about following a football team for a year or a great baseball team or a couple of championship wrestlers. Uh, 
and and I realized that uh, it was my loss, having not read in some ways the seminal book that was probably a, a real inspiration for a lot of imitators that have come after it. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, about some of the other books that have been written in the wake of Friday Night Lights. Well, I sometimes think that I started the growth industry. It, was, it wasn't that <laughs> I was the first to do this, but I, I was maybe among the first or the first to, to really almost make this a sociological work and ethnography. To, to, as I say, I wasn't really interested in high school football as much as I was the way it influences and continues to influence um, you know, life in small town America. I think one of the reasons the book has done so well is because it's it's timeless. The issues raised then are arguably even worse now. And I know there have been a, a lot of imitators and there have been a lot of uh, terrific books. But, you know, since I started it, I think I should get some of the royalties. I think it's only fair. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe you could say a word about uh, why Odessa, Texas, when you decided that you wanted to write a book about uh, the hold that football, high school football had in small-town America. What drew you specifically to the relatively remote community of Odessa, Texas? Nothing like any place, I think, in which you had ever grown up or lived. No, I mean, nothing close. You know, I grew up on the Upper West Side in New York City, which is about as far away as you can get from Odessa physically and certainly psychologically. I picked Odessa because I... uh, I knew you had to do a book like this in Texas. I picked out that because it's not quintessentially a small town, but it's remoteness makes it very isolated and 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 finite in feeling. And I also picked it because I wanted a narrative, a story to tell, and uh, the Permian team I wrote about at that point was the winningest team in Texas state history. So I I, I hoped that this would be a team that, that would you know advance uh, far in the playoffs. And I should add, parenthetically, I actually wrote the book in Shorewood, Wisconsin. Ah, really? Um, I did. My wife, my wife was a med student at the Medical College of Wisconsin. So after Odessa, we moved to uh, Shorewood and wrote the book, and it really was most wonderful moments of my life. Wow. Very gl- glad to know that connection to Wisconsin. You actually say early in the book that uh, this football team, the Permian High School football team in Odessa, Texas, was the most successful football dynasty in the country, pro college or high school. I mean, that is lavish praise you are heaping on this football program. Uh, what, what led you to uh, characterize it in that way? Well, you know, I, when you're talking about Texas high school and you're talking about winning state championships and you're talking at the highest level, it is, it is ultra-competitive. I mean, there's some great teams uh, in Texas, and Permian's record in the 1980s in the totality of the 1980s, I followed the team in 1988. In the totality of the 80s, I think they won four state championships. I think they went to the semifinals five or six times. They went to the quarterfinals six or seven times. And that's, that's astounding because you're not only playing in the regular season. I mean, you've got to run the table uh, for, you know, five games. And the only thing, you know, obviously there were the great Packer dynasty in the early 60s and then the Steelers. But to have that kind of record, that kind of consistent record, uh, year in and year out was phenomenal, but the problem is that the expectations get raised to enormous and, and frankly, in some ways, crazy, crazy um, levels. You don't say too much about this, and I'm very curious to know how your overture, in a sense, was received, particularly by 
the coaches of this high school team. The idea of a guy not only from out of town but out of state from a whole different part of the country coming in and being there. And you were there not only for essentially the course of that entire year, but you describe it as, as though you were at essentially every practice and every meeting. I mean, you were always there. How open were these coaches to your presence in their midst, given the fact that they take what they do so incredibly seriously? Were you viewed at all with suspicion in the sense of perhaps being a potentially disruptive source uh, in, in, in what they were doing, a disruptive presence? Or, or did they just willingly embrace this, this opportunity? They, you know, they did embrace the opportunity. And at that point, when I so-called pitched the book, I, I thought it would be much more of a Hoosiers type book. Um, I had no idea what would happen in the 1988 season, uh, some of which was very disturbing and very shocking and, and sadly still goes on uh, today. As I said, I think that's why the book has endured. They were very open. And then you learn, you know, when you get the kind of access to every practice and every meeting open or closed and you really with the team, you learn to shut up. I mean, you learn to kind of keep um, in the shadows. Um, as the season unfolded, I saw shocking instances of racism. I saw totally misplaced uh, academic priorities. I, I saw a high school football program that it just, in a sense, was both beautiful and talented, but also, you know, out of control in terms of its popularity, in terms of its importance. And I had to write about that. Now, did I discuss that with the coaches? Absolutely not. Did I warn them about, you know, uh, you better you better lower the temperature. Absolutely not. When uh, they really discourage kids from taking the SAT exam in the fall on Saturday because it conflicted with watching game tape of films. Um, absolutely not. And I like the coaches. They they hated the book, and the, the head coach comes off extremely well in the book, and he doesn't like it. And I accept that, but he also hasn't read it, which is kind of odd. <laughs> but you know, I am a journalist, and they knew I was a journalist. And no, I did not. Uh, play my hand, and there are Hoosiers-like elements. The games are beautiful. The kids are noble, noble gladiators willing to sacrifice every possible ounce um, of themselves. When I went back to Odessa to do the afterward, I felt the same chills I felt um, then. But, um, you know, there were elements that no journalist uh, could possibly ignore, and nor was anything exaggerated. People have had 25 years to discredit the book and have not, you know, not been able to. It's all true. It's all true. Could you say a word about uh, establishing comfortable, easy rapport with these young athletes? Uh, because, again, you were, uh, in, in so many ways, uh, a, a fish out of water. I mean, uh, out of your most comfortable element, I'm, I'm assuming. Although maybe you could say a word, too, about how, for, for instance, how familiar were, were you personally with the game of football? Had you played football? or I mean, were, and, 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 in, and any other respects in your life? I mean, did you have common ground you could draw upon in order to really establish rapport with these young, young athletes? And going into it, were you worried about that? Well, you always worry about that, and then you worry about the culture difference. I mean, here's a guy who's in a tweed jacket and penny loafers and is from the East Coast and has lived a life of embarrassing privilege uh, coming to, into Odessa, Texas, which is primarily a tough, gritty oil town and working-class town. And I wonder, would the gulf and gap uh, be too big? I played high school until my sophomore year in high school at five foot six and 140 pounds. Um, I wasn't tough enough, nor did I have much future. 
but was a huge sports fan growing up in New York City. Season tickets to the Jets and the Giants. So I, I, I knew the game. And, you know, it didn't take – these kids were sophisticated in the sense they had reporters around them all the time, all the time. Because Texas high school football was covered very, very closely. And if you become state champion, you're covered by every major newspaper uh, in the state. So they were familiar with what a reporter was. And they said, you know, this guy's here. He's going to every practice. He's making a commitment. Um, so I don't think they changed their feelings or changed uh, what they did. And after a while, when you're there enough and you begin to meet the kids, they were curious about me, and, and I was curious about them. And then they pulled a horrible, wonderful prank on me, which, frankly, really broke the ice. <laughs> we're speaking with Buzz Bissinger, and we're talking about his book, Friday Night Lights, which has just been uh, re-released in a special 25th anniversary edition. And I keep neglecting to, to include the subtitle of the book. The, the full title is Friday Night Lights, A Town, a Team, and a Dream. Let's talk for a moment about the town of Odessa, Texas, because I think one of the best things you do about this book, and the reason why it's such a fascinating book to read, even if somebody isn't completely enamored with the, the game of football itself, is it's just so fascinating to learn so much about a town that probably at a glance wouldn't seem all that interesting, and yet it's tremendously interesting when someone with your perceptiveness uh, uh examines it and, and, and talks about it. I wonder if you could say a word about this matter of what you call the the boom and bust cycle, uh, which was the reality of Odessa, Texas over the course of decades, which, in your words, made for a unique kind of schizophrenia for Odessa and its citizens. What are you talking about there? Well, you know, Odessa to me is, is there's a lot of things that are wonderful about it. There's some things that are that are not so wonderful. At least when I was what I was there, and I think there have been significant changes. But it's an American place. You live by your wits. You live by your hands. Uh, it was in the Permian Basin, which is the biggest oil field, um, you know, in the country. And people who work in oil, you know, take risks. And as we've seen recently, oil price goes up, and then it goes down. And when the price goes up, the, the town expands and the boom is on and people build houses and there's flush with money and um, crime rate goes up, murder rate goes up, everything goes up and then the bus comes and uh, you know there's vacant houses all over the place and people have lost a lot of money and the, the roughnecks who work in Odessa have now gone somewhere else and so when I got there in 1988 it was in a bust period so it does create for schizophrenia. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that, that high school football, you know, was uh, so important. And certainly, you can argue, it was heightened in Odessa in the 1980s. But, you know, this is happening at thousands of American towns um, all over the country. The kind of small places that we sort of dismiss, you know, the places you see as a dot on a, on a jet plane uh, flying overhead. And I am convinced that every place, every town, in America, there are, are fascinating aspects, and that was one of the things uh, that I wanted to explore. Because, it, and I appreciate you saying this, it, it's not a book about high school football. It's, it, it's not. It's simply the glue and the narrative structure of the book. And one of the greatest gratifications is that you know, women, as many women as men, have said, "I I love this book because of what you wrote about the the intensity, the the pressure, the tragedy, the heroes, and the, and the way mothers and fathers." live vicariously through their kids. 
Absolutely. It's a very, very human story. It's it's not really a football story at all. Another right. another quick question about Odessa that I want to ask you about, because this is also, I think, a really interesting observation you make. You said it was still a place that seemed on the edge of the frontier, a paradoxical mix of the Old South and the Wild West. And again, that's not I'm sure unique to Odessa, Texas, but there's probably not all that many places uh, in, in, the, in America where, where you might say that about it. Uh, an interesting mix of the Old South and the Wild West. Well, I have to say, and this sounds awful, that was a really good sentence. I can't believe I wrote that. I mean, that <laughs> sounds really good. Um, much better than I thought I actually uh, write. It was Old South in the sense of segregation. Uh, the, the schools were not desegregated until 1982, and that's, what, 28 years after School Board versus Brown? I mean, that's very shocking. It was a town that, that was, you know, very much divided between black and white. The minorities, the blacks, lived on the bad side of town across the railroad tracks, and then the, the whites lived um, on the other side. And, you know, the use of the N-word, and I hate even mentioning it, was prevalent and, and shocking. The racism shown towards one of the players is, shocks me and disturbs me to this day. His name was Booby Miles. But the frontier mentality was, you go for it. It was a place, you know, it was a, it was a scam in its founding. It was, it was founded by a, a, a bunch of wheeler dealers from Ohio. And they promised, you know, bountiful water, great place to have a farm. And, you know, they got there, desert. And, you know, they really... Um, built the place by the grit of their souls and, and, the, and the grit of their hands. And there, there's a wonderful friendliness to it. It is the kind of place, still, you know, you keep your front door open because you never know who might need a place to stay. And that was very much the, the, the feel uh, of the place. So there was this paradox, just like as you point out, there was the schizophrenia between, the, you know, boom and bust. And that makes for a very, very interesting place. Before we talk about some of these athletes and a, f- a few of the specifics, I, I do want to jump ahead for a second. I think I mentioned earlier that this 25th uh, anniversary edition of the book includes an afterword in which you share with us the experience of reconnecting with uh, six of the most important young men in this book. And you reconnect with each of them in person. Uh, and uh, and it takes you at least down in and around uh, Odessa, Texas itself. Could you just say a word about how different Odessa itself is now versus when you were there 25 years ago? And we should also maybe mention parenthetically that you, you, you say at some point that you've been back to Odessa actually quite a number of times since 1988. Uh, so you've, you've, you're in a position to really kind of chart whatever arc it has been on. Or is Odessa pretty much still the same place it was back in 1988? Well, I have been uh, back to Odessa frequently. Uh, we have dear, wonderful friends, some of the closest friends I have who live in Odessa. When the book came out in 1990, it was enormously controversial, particularly in the town of Odessa, I was supposed to do a book tour down there and had to cancel it because of threats of bodily harm. And I knew people in Odessa, and they would be willing to take a swing at me. I, I knew that because that's, that's the way they are. They're open, they're honest, and they're blunt. But I have seen the town. I was recently, most recently there in April. It's grown up. It's certainly bigger. It has a cosmo, cosmopolitan feel in certain places. And I also should point out that high school football at Permian High School is not nearly 
what it was. The, the town has changed demographically. It's now majority uh, Latino. And certainly, you know, what kids do on a Friday night? There was no cable, really, when I was there. There was no Internet. There was no Facebook. But I think the town has diversified and really, you know, grown up in some very, very, you know, positive ways. But the nexus of high school football has now shifted. The new Permian probably is Allen, Texas, which has won three state championships and parenthetically built a high school football stadium that cost $30 million. Hmm. Uh, Katy High School, which is outside of Houston, is building a 10,000-seat stadium. I think it's going to cost $58 million. So the themes of Friday Night Lights are, uh, you know, disturbingly alive and well. We're speaking with Bud Bissinger about the 25th anniversary edition of his classic Friday Night Lights, A Town, A Team, and A Dream. Uh, A couple questions I want to ask you about Permian High School, where this football dynasty existed. Um, This is one of the few things, uh, I mean, your, your book is just so thorough that there's hardly anything I was left really kind of wondering about. One of the few things I wondered about was... Uh, what was the place of other sports at Permian High School? I mean, clearly, they none of them equaled the, the, the centrality of the football program. But obviously, there were other sports there, baseball and basketball and wrestling uh, get mentioned uh, maybe, maybe a time or two. Uh, and, and you weren't really there to follow those, those programs. But I just wonder if you came away with much of a sense of if those programs mattered even remotely as much? And did the athletes approach those sports uh, with anything like the same ferocious intensity with which they undertook the game of football? Well, you know, kids in Texas, kids in Wisconsin, I mean, kids all over the country approach the sports that they play very, very uh, seriously. So they have their own individual intensity. But other sports besides football? Yeah, I mean, they were there. They were lip service. They got very little attendance. Um, no one ever talked about them. And you talked about change in Odessa, Permian High School. They now have softball. They now have soccer. Soccer? When I was there, I don't think they knew what it was. <laughs> uh, football Football was God, king, and country. They played in a, in a stadium that in the 1988, 1985 cost almost $6 million and seated 19,000 people. And on many occasions, that, that place sold out. And that shows you that the the dominance of high school football, um, you know, in that town. So other sports were just really, you know, not important. They were there because you had to have them, basically. Hmm. And I know, I mean, like, for instance, the quarterback of the football team you followed, Mike Winchell, I know you mentioned at some point that he was also a very good basketball player, I mean, a baseball player. But by and large, did these football players engage in those other sports as well? Because some coaches are pretty possessive and would just assume their their athletes weren't involved in other sports. They they allowed Mike to play baseball because he was very good. Mike, as you said, was was the quarterback. They they did not like us like it because you at that point in time you were allowed to have spring practices uh, in football. Um, they discouraged it. There were some players who ran track or, or uh, threw the shot put. But by and large, you know, football um, football was it. So out of a squad of, what, 55, there may, might be five or six people uh, who were playing, uh, you know, other sports. One of the factors that made Permian so good was the off-season workouts, and they would, you know, place uh, garbage cans around the wrestling mat so kids could vomit and then go back to work. So it made for an incredibly well-conditioned team 
So there was a storybook quality because here's this team from the middle of nowhere in West Texas. Here's this team from a city that, you know, it's a, it's a bad city when even Texas makes fun of it. <laughs> uh, but here is this team in this town with a legendary football program that routinely beats bigger schools uh, with bigger kids because they fight harder and they, and they play harder and they compete harder. And, and they're more disciplined. And that was, that's reflected in the book. There's something still very, very powerful and magical about the high school uh, football experience. It's, mm. it's really our sense of priorities about it. And what fear, what, I, what happened then and what I know what happens now is academics are really considered an obstacle to get through in order to play football or, or sport. They're not considered the mainstay. Academics, you got to get through them. You got to pass. But once you're done with academics, you know, let's let's go play some football. And that that's a dangerous sense of priorities. And Friday Lights was really the first to point it out uh, in detail. Right, and in some very very interesting and disturbing detail. Uh, you've been asked hundreds of questions about Friday Night Lights over the years, and probably you've been asked 10 of the same questions hundreds of times over and over again. I'm wagering the question I'm about to ask you, you have not ever been asked before. In my other life, I am a college music professor, and one of my colleagues used to live in Beaumont, Texas, and he has described to me the enormous focus in most of the state of Texas on choral music. And at the high school level, for instance, there are all kinds of high schools where being in the choir is a supremely important activity. And, and Texas is just has this, this ravenous appetite for choral, choral music. They, the state's Choral Directors Association uh, sort of operates independently of the rest of the country because they, they have so much choral activity going on. I knew nothing about that. It was a real education for me. I just wondered, did you ever encounter the choir at Permian High School in Odessa, Texas, or is Odessa one of those places where the choral music craze in Texas has uh, failed to take hold? Well, that is, I have never been asked that question, and it's a hard question to answer. I have to say, and I don't doubt it, because Texas is just an ultra-competitive state, um, but at Permian High School, I didn't hear a lot of kids singing through the hallway. <laughs> uh, football, football was uh, the king. But I, I will say this: the high school band was enormously rigorous, and the the head of the band at that time was this marvelous figure. I forget his name, but he was tougher than the football coach. <laughs> so the marching band was very, very important um, at Permian. But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hear much in terms of uh, of choral singing. <laughs> One of the facets of this football team that uh, really jumped out at me, besides when I love the phrase you use at one point uh, early in the season when you said something about how the team was about to become the property of those so desperately devoted to it. And of course, that's so much of what this whole book is about. One right. facet of that desperate devotion to the football team played out in the form of uh, a group known as the Pepettes. Yes. Uh, and these were uh, young ladies in the high school. Uh, and it's just ex- an extraordinary thing, although maybe something like it exists in other places. Tell our listeners about the Pepettes and, and what they were just expected to do and were happy to do, to do on behalf of the football players. Well, I don't. I don't know uh, about other states. In Texas, I'm sure that the Pepettes did exist then, and I should say, in terms of change, uh, the pep, the Pepettes are no longer. 
which I think is a really good thing because one of the themes of the book is the institutionalized inferiority of, of women uh, in high school, which is also something I think exists today. The Pepettes were a group of girls, and it was very prestigious. Each of them was assigned a football player, and their job was to make a big yard sign. They make these huge yard signs. Some of them look like mini Rose Bowl floats. They go in the front yard of a player so everyone knows that he plays for Permian. And then, and then on Friday, I forget when the pep rally was, um, at the weekly pep rally, they would they would bring food, you know, cookie or cakes. Uh, one of the kids, I think, was brought a six-pack of beer. So they really are, you know, geisha girls. And, you know, uh, whether sexual favors, I don't know. We can guess. Uh, but there was a geisha girl mentality. And there was the mentality of, you know, women are there, uh, to serve their their man, and it was a strange to see. It wasn't good for women, and it also puts these kids on yet a, another higher rung uh, of a pedestal. And that's that's the problem we have, and what we do with athletes. And the thing is, it's starting at a younger and younger age. It's now starting when they're seven or eight uh, years old, and they get on that pedestal, and they're treated differently until something happens uh, when they're knocked off. But as I say, fortunately, the pet bet. Uh, are gone. I don't think it was a good institution. And I give the high school credit for you know moving into the 20th century and realizing that it that it wasn't a good thing. But was it strange to see? Yeah, you know, in some ways, being Odessa was like being in a third world country. There were all these things that that I had never seen you know in my life. I could scarcely imagine. <laughs> right. Uh, let's talk about the the athletes that uh, you got to know. And uh, and befriend and who, who we get to know very very well uh, through the course of this book. Um, th- there are six of them in particular, and six that you specifically reconnected with uh, as part of this uh, 25th anniversary uh, edition. I wonder, was it hard to sort of decide to focus on these six athletes? I mean, I'm not saying you went in with this idea that let me find six of the most interesting. Guys, I mean, I'm sure you had no idea at the outset just who was going to sort of emerge. That being said, uh, was it hard to to know, in a sense, who to write about and how thoroughly to profile certain certain uh, certain uh, certain guys, and and also what facets of their lives to sort of bring to the fore? Uh, what how tricky a matter was that for you as the author? Well, it, it, it's a good question because it, it it was tricky. You know, that's that's the fear that you have going down. A, you don't know what's going to happen if they go five for five for some reason. There goes your story. And B, are they going to talk to you? Are they going to relate to you? So in the beginning, you're quiet and you're observing. And you know, when you observe, you see certain mannerisms and you see person personalities emerge among the players. And then what I did was I took. Uh, various players, you know, out to lunch where we could talk to see if they were, you know, amenable to me, profile them and, and be with them. And, you know, from there, it, it you know, kind of developed. I did uh, write about the three captains um, because they were the senior captains. Uh, and I, you know, there's no question that the six kids I picked were kind of representative of, of what I saw as the entire team. Uh, the, the the quarterback Mike Winchell, who's who just the pressure on him is 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 beyond belief. I mean, he shakes um, in the huddle because the expectations are so enormous. Don Billingsley, who's the, who's the bad boy, uh, Booby Miles, who's you know the great uh, black hope, Brian Chavez, who's a genius and second in his class and sees football for what it should be as as an outlet. 
Jared McDougall, who lives, breathes, and dies uh, Permian football. So that was part of the selection process. I was curious about Mike Winchell, uh, the quarterback of the team. We mentioned earlier he was also a very good baseball player, someone who uh, did not like crowds, I mean, and uh, in some respects a really tortured young man, and, and we feel for him feeling such enormous uh, pressure upon his young shoulders. I wanted to ask you about something you said about Mike Mike Winchell. That is, this is actually at this point uh, when he was uh, – about his uh, incredible play in, in Little League Baseball. You write, he became the stuff of legend with 27 pitches in a row thrown for strikes, a single season in which he hit 30 home runs. And then somewhere around the time his father started slipping, I should mention that's a, a health uh, issue that his father had, which ultimately right. claimed his life, Mike lost that innate confidence in himself. The gift was always there, but he began to question it, doubt it, brood over it. I'm just curious, for a young athlete like Mike Winchell, uh, did he tell you that, or did someone else tell you that, or did you manage to sort of f- figure that out or ferret that out? Because, uh, again, we're, we're, we're talking about young men who might not necessarily be uh, actually all that emotionally demonstrative or maybe even all that self-reflective. Uh, I'm just curious, in an, an instant like that, how how did you come to understand that about this particular young man, Mike Winchell? You know, I mean, you know, going back, and I'm trying to remember, uh, Mike said some of it. Uh, his brother, who I interviewed at length, said a lot of it. And since he was his brother, I felt that was a credible source. And you could see it. I mean, you could see him brood. You could see him shake. You know, you could see him just unable to shake off uh, a bad pass. And the, and the coaches talked about it um, as well, that Mike had an incredible gift, but, but could he really, you know, embrace that gift and know um, how good he was? And so that's, that's why you're there. I mean, I lived there for a year with my family. You know, you can't do this where you parachute uh, in and out every weekend. You, you, you have to live there. You have to breathe the team. You have to be there for every practice. <laughs> you have to breathe the town so that when you go back to Wisconsin to write, you're writing with knowledge um, and, and authority, and you can make those statements uh, about someone and, and know that those statements are uh, correct, because I pride myself on being a, a, a thorough journalist. But you can only do that you know, by immersing yourself in the life and soul and spirit of, the, of that team um, and that town. Hmm. Yeah, he, he in particular, really comes to life for us. And, and again, I, I, I think we, as we read about him, we really feel for him and the weight of responsibility uh, on him. One of the most gifted of the athletes on this team was a young man named Ivory Christian. And one of the things that is especially intriguing about him is his own kind of love-hate relationship with football. And it's an interesting story in the midst of what otherwise is the story of so many people who seem to love nothing in their lives nearly as much as they love football. And this young man, Ivory Christian, he doesn't have that relationship to football really at all. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, and I, I think one of the reasons this book has endured for 25 years, and I've thought about it a lot, is that uh, it is timeless, and it's timeless because of these characters. I think that we all probably know a Winchell or someone like Winchell or someone like Ivory Christian uh, who's very ambivalent of the game. One of the chapters is the ambivalence of Ivory. Ivory was very, very proud. Um, he saw the racism in the town. Uh, he saw aspects of not racism on the, on the team, 
but, you know, he was very aware of the fact that there, in a sense, was some segregation on the team in terms of, of the, the black players, you know, hanging uh, together. And so I think that bothered him. It bothered him a lot when he was incredibly skilled and did not start at middle linebacker his junior year. Uh, the person who took his place as a starter was 136 pounds. I mean, there was no comparison, and that bothered him, and that made him uh, wonder why. And and Ivory was was very smart and very uh, intuitive, and and very very proud. So there were moments, you know, where he would get into the to the mania of mojo, which was the moniker, and then moments where he he stood back because you know when you live on the south side of town, you're not really a part of that. You know, you're not really a part of that. Sometimes you get invited to the parties. You know, sometimes you don't because this very much uh, was was a sport that was embraced, um, you know, by the whites um, in the town. I mean, you know, the football team was overwhelmingly majority white. and There were six black players uh, who took up, I think, seven starting positions. But they were always, you know, always on the fringe. Mm. And Ivory was aware of that. Mm. Of course, the other black player among the six that you focused on was Booby Miles. And, of course, his story in some respects is kind of the central tragedy of the story because of the terrible injury which he sustained. And it, and what made it especially tragic, of course, were the circumstances under which this uh, serious knee injury occurred. Well, Booby is a tragedy. I've kept up with Booby since the book. I, I, I love Booby. Uh, we've kept up re- regularly in the new afterword, which is a real afterword. It's about 10,000 words, and I, I spent time writing it. Uh, Booby is now um, in prison. I can't say I'm surprised. His life has never, ever been the same. Was He was one of the best running backs in the state of Texas. His physique was really almost like LeBron in football. He was a man among boys. And he had waited for his senior season all his life, all these expectations. The town has incredible expectations for him. And then I'll never forget it. It was in uh, Jones Stadium in Lubbock, Texas. It was in August. It was uh, just about dusk. And uh, his cleat gets stuck in the turf, and someone hits him, not even that hard. And he tore his anterior cruciate ligament. And that pretty much uh, was it. And then once he got hurt, he got discarded. There were horrible racial epithets um, set of of him. And, you know, there are a thousand boobies out there who get, you know, thrown by the side of the road when someone is better or when they get hurt. And, you know, it's dangerous for these kids. It's it's not a good thing. And there are thousands of kids like Booby who Booby was basically, you know, treated as, I hate to say this, but it's true, as, as a, as a football animal, that the only thing he could do in life was play football. That's the only skill he had. Um, so there, there were no academics. There was no uh, push on him to study. Um, you know, it was not encouraged. They just wanted to make sure he got through and would be eligible to play. And he will be the first to tell you that he, he really, really suffered because of that. Hmm. When you're a 17-year-old kid and you're on top of the world, as a lot of these high school athletes are in this country, when you're on top of the world and, and people are extolling you and you have, you know, 10 or 15, a thousand. I heard of some kid who plays, I think, for Allen who had 30,000 30, followers on Twitter. 30,000 oh. in high school. In high school. When that happens, you're not going to care about grades. You're not going to care about academics. You're, you're waiting uh, for, that, for that next football game. Booby is a junior, got paid to play football. He would go into the locker room. 
every Monday, and there would be an envelope containing as many dollars as yards he had gained the previous Friday night. Well, you're not going to care about academics when you're getting, uh, you know, one one game he gained 300 uh, yards, 300 bucks to a kid who doesn't have a lot of money. That's 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 a big deal, but it's it's going to blow your head. It just is, and you know he is the the end result. And I think if there's anything in in Friday Night Lights that lingers, although I think there's a lot that lingers, Booby is the ultimate cautionary tale of everything that's wrong about our system of sports today. Hmm. Among the other um, important athletes whom you uh, examine, uh, one of the most interesting stories is of Don Billingsley, who's one of the real party animals on the team. Right. Uh, but beneath that surface is a really compelling story about he and his dad. At one point you say when uh, his parents split up and he ultimately made the choice of, of coming back to live with his dad on a permanent basis. And you write, living with his dad, living with Charlie, was sometimes more like living with an older brother or a roommate than with a father. I mean, so that's that's the backdrop under which right. he is playing out his life the way you describe. And that, and you know, that, that came from Don, and I met Charlie, and I liked Charlie. And I, I want to add that Charlie was portrayed by Tim McGraw himself. And that that portrayal was completely made up, completely made up. Basically, there was very little truth in it. Charlie um, had been an all-state player from Permian. Charlie was 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 tough as nails. Uh, Charlie, you know, had issues. But you're right. I mean, Don wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. They were very big footsteps because everyone in that town remembers the great high school players. And so Don went to live with uh, uh, Charlie and and played football. And Don inherited from Charlie. You know, Charlie liked the party, and Don loved the party. He wasn't. He was a rogue. He was a, a rogue. He was charming. He was funny. He was bright. He liked to drink. Um, you know, I remember him saying once after they lost the game, he said, you know, this is a great opportunity to, to find a woman who feels sorry for, for you and maybe take, go to bed. I mean, that's how he saw life. But, um, you know, Don literally got religion after a dear friend of his committed suicide when he was a freshman in college, and that woke him up, and Don has gone on to do really terrific things. Uh, is a healthcare consultant, looks great, still at his playing weight, has three terrific kids, which proves to me that sometimes the worst barometer of future performance is, is high school. Hmm. I never would have expected that out of Don. Ever. Right. Another, in a sense, surprise is, uh, or somebody who, who very much discards some of the stereotypes that we've been talking about is this a young man named Brian Chavez, who, uh, unlike uh, most of his teammates, was not only a very good football player, but actually a, a brilliant scholar as well, ranking towards the very top of his class, although one realizes that's that's not quite the accomplishment that it might be right. in a more rigorous exactly. school district. But nevertheless, you write, he fit every stereotype of the dumb jock, all of which went to show how absolutely meaningless stereotypes can be. He was a remarkable kid from a remarkable family. He would be one of the more feel-good stories in Friday Night Lights. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to feel good about uh, Brian. And once again, uh, he is a character that, that many people today can identify with, which are kids who love football. And by the way, I love football. I love football. Um, but Brian saw football the way it should be seen. It's not a means to an end. It's a place to have fun, to get out your aggressions, to be part of what was then a legendary 
uh, program, but he never saw it as, as a launching point. Uh, he was very, very strong. Um, you know, the way he talks sometimes, if you've met him initially, say, well, uh, what's with that kid? He doesn't seem very smart. And then you would get to know him, and then you would know that he was number two in his class, and then you would know that he applied to Harvard, and then you know that he got into Harvard. It was a very difficult transition. Uh, but, you know, he, he made it through, which was really wonderful. I think he was the first person to go to Harvard for Odessa in probably 25 uh, years. But, you know, why do they pick Brian? Because, as I say, I was looking for types that were representative, not just of the team in Odessa, but the team everywhere in the U.S., basically. And, as I said, Brian understood and saw football the right way. So what does that mean? If you keep perspective about sports, you get a lot out of it that the things we always say you learn, but you don't learn because there's so much emphasis on winning, you do learn, uh, particularly if you're academically inclined, which is teamwork, camaraderie, dedication, learning how to win, you know, dreams coming true. And, and Brian really personified that until, frankly, uh, something happened about five years ago that, that just totally devastated me. Right. And that's an interesting story, too, from your afterward. Finally, Jared McDougall, someone you felt so close to. And I have to say, there is a photograph of him in the book. I first saw this when the afterward was excerpted in Sports Illustrated, and I saw this photograph. And that was the moment when I thought, I finally have to read Friday Night Lights. (laughs) Describe to our listeners this extraordinary photograph that I'm talking about and and what it says about Jared McDougall. You know, and I want to say that the, the pictures were taken by uh, Rob Clark, uh, and they are absolutely brilliant pictures, some of the best pictures I've, I've ever seen, including the iconic cover. And this picture you're describing, uh, Permian had just lost to Midland League. Uh, Midland was the sister city. Uh, it was a shocking loss. It was an upset. They had lost uh, by a point, and there's a picture afterwards of Jared. His shoulder pads are off. He's just in his gray undershirt. He's sobbing, his eyes are closed, another player is sobbing into his shoulder, and he punches his fist against the wall. And you're exactly right. You see the agony. You you see the sadness. You see the pressure. You see everything in that face. You see a young man who has been absolutely devastated um, by, you know, a, a football loss, and you both feel terrible for him, and then you say, whoa, wait a second, let's, let's, let's get a grip here. Could it possibly be that important? Well, the answer is is yes. <laughs> in Odessa, Texas, it is. Right. That's for sure. Well, in this book, we get to know this remarkable town, this remarkable football program, and, uh, and some of the uh, remarkable young men who experience this extraordinary glory, and then uh, all of them, in one way or another, uh, find themselves uh, very much off that pedestal and contending with what the rest of life throws at them. And again, this new anniversary edition includes an afterword in which Buzz Bissinger reconnects in person with six of these major figures in this classic book. Again, it is the 25th anniversary edition of Friday Night Lights, A Town, A Team, and A Dream, uh, which is now available in paperback from Da Capo Press. Buzz Bissinger, I thank you for Uh, writing this tremendously interesting book and for joining me today on the morning show to talk about it. What a pleasure to reconnect with you. Well, thank you. My pleasure as well.